Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Welcome to our preview of Season 15. I'm here with Graham Chedd, our producer, and we're going to give you a little taste of what's to come on Season 15. It's a really interesting lineup, Graham. Yes, as always on Clear and Vivid, you've been talking to some really fascinating people. And, and it's interesting, I think, that there's a sort of theme emerging, subtly anyway. I can't wait to hear it. What is it? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> well, several of the people you talk to are looking at how the brain affects how we relate to others. And uh, we'll come across those guests as we progress through the season in a few minutes. Our first guest is Max Brooks. I've known Max since he was about three years old because my family has been friends with his family for a long time. His mother and father are the famous Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft. And that, in a way, was a little bit of a problem for him starting out in his career as a writer. Max has become famous writing books in a serious vein about zombies. They weren't comedy books. They weren't straight adventure books. He had a little trouble convincing critics that he had something in mind that was more serious than what they expected. The, the irony is, zombies made me and almost broke me. Well, oh, that's interesting. Why? Because I wrote my first book, The Zombie Survival Guide, never to be published. I wrote it as an exercise for me, uh, as an exercise in dealing with fear, uh, dealing with demons. Because I was always a, a, I was an erotic kid, as you know. I was nervous. Uh, God knows where I got it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I was always trying to figure out problems. And when I was young and I saw zombie movies, they scared me so much. I thought, how would I really survive it? Forget Hollywood, forget movies and plot twists. If they were real, if the, if the threat was real, how would I survive in the real world? That became an exercise, the zombie survival guide, which I eventually got published. And what almost broke me was they tried to publish it as a comedy book and tried to market me as Mel Brooks Jr., uh, that was a disaster in the making. And I tried to warn them. I said, this is not a comedy book. I'm not Mel Brooks Jr. I'm Max Brooks. And if you try to market me as something I'm not, you'll disappoint everybody. And sure enough, that's what happened in the beginning. Uh, the LA Times gave me the worst review ever. Why would Mel Brooks's son write the least funny book ever written? <laughs> you actually are a funny guy, but you weren't trying to be funny with that book. It's amazing that even after that first 
couple of poor reviews because they expected the wrong thing from Max, the books went on to be really, really very successful. And people think of Max as the zombie expert. But it's not just the fantasy of being attacked by zombies that makes his books interesting. The threat of zombies in fiction stands for a threat that humanity might face in other ways. And it gives us a chance to think about it in ways that we might not otherwise think about it, which led Max to be invited, of all things, to be a consultant, a fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. It was a long road to get there because initially I'd gotten a call from the United States Naval War College. Its president at the time, Vice Admiral Weiskup, asked me to come speak to his inaugural book club and wanted me to be on a, a panel of problem solvers. Uh, and when I said, of course, are you sure you got the right guy? <laughs> are you sure you didn't confuse me with a Lieutenant Commander Max Brooks or something like that? He said, no, no, no. He said, if you take out the zombies, you have outlined the actual steps in a global crisis, which I had tried to do. You know, what? what's fascinating to me about zombies is that they're a macro threat, not a micro threat. You know, in every other monster movie, as long as you don't go to the monster, don't go in the water, don't go to the haunted house, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. But you know, here's, Here the monster comes to you. Exactly. And ironically, in a zombie threat, you can be killed without ever having seen a zombie. That's what writing the first book taught me was you can die from what the military calls second and third order effects, like starvation, dehydration, malnutrition, infection, other diseases, because what the zombies do is they chew through the threads that hold society together. And that's actually what happens in real wars. Because in real war, for every one battlefield death, you might have dozens, maybe even hundreds of people who die because the war destroys uh, the network that keep mm. people alive. And that is what fascinated me so much. So that's why Admiral Wisecup said, you, you get it. You get how these systems break down. I'd like you to come speak to my, my students. And then from there, I was invited to other strategic studies groups. Our next guest is a professor at Duke University. He's called Diego Bojorquez, and he studies something that fascinated you when you first heard about it, I think. The fact that our gut, our guts, are able to communicate directly with our brains. I love finding out more and more about how important the gut is to the way we think and the way we behave. And in this case, it helps us know what we're eating, whether we need to eat more, whether we shouldn't eat any of that stuff we just ate. And as he points out in his talk with you, it's been, it's been known for a long time that the gut communicates with the brain via hormones. But that's a pretty slow process. And what he's discovered is that there are cells lining the surface of the gut that are sort of like the taste buds in our tongue. And he wondered if these cells, which he calls neuropods, could somehow connect up to the neurons in our brain. So in 2012, I had devised an experiment in which we took out a single uh, neuron from uh, the brain of a mouse, and we put him in a dish in the, in the presence of a single one of these uh, neuropod cells from the gut of a mouse. And then we simply just put the little dish in an incubator and videotape the interaction of the, of the cells. Yeah. 
And what I was expecting, it was that they will get close or, you know, something that we could say, like, it looks like they are communicating. And I still remember it was a, it was a Saturday on, uh, in June, I believe it was June 27 or something like that, because I went onto the microscope and I started to pass the images. And it was so striking that not only the cells it became, cl- they recognized each other and they got closer, but they actually recapitulated this gut-brain connection in the dish. All you had was a nerve cell and this sensor cell. And the sensor cell just reaches out, bang, lands right in the nerve cell and communicates to the brain almost instantaneously, right? It's in milliseconds. Yeah, so once they are connected, once they are physically plugged to each other, then the communication happens you know, from the milliseconds to over time. And in fact, I remember keeping those cells together in, in that microscope uh, for five days, I think, four or five days. And then I had to ex- end the experiment because otherwise uh, it was becoming too expensive uh, paying for the microscope hours. Right? <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, neuropods in the gut lining aren't connecting with brain cells directly, but uh, what they are doing is connecting to the vagus nerve. That's a long nerve that connects the brain to much of the rest of the body, including the gut. So that way, our brain gets immediate feedback about what we've just eaten. But Diego is also looking into whether the vagus nerve doesn't only convey messages to the brain, but maybe also pathogens. So, for instance, Parkinson's could be caused by the vagus nerve ferrying bad stuff up to the brain from the gut. Up through the vagus nerve. So this is one example of where things that happen in Vegas ought to stay in Vegas. (laughs) Oh, very nice, very nice. Well, apt anyway. Our next guest is, in fact, a return visitor, Kate Bowler. Uh, She was in our very first season about uh, three years ago. In fact, we were just trying to figure that out. Uh, Amazing, it's been three years. Amazing and wonderful because the gist of our conversation then was how she knew only month by month whether or not she had another month to live because she had stage four cancer and was having a treatment that she got every month. And here we are three years later, and she's still as buoyant and funny and insightful as she was three years ago. Yes, in fact, she tells a very funny story about what she did right after her diagnosis. I was fresh from this news that I very suddenly had stage four cancer, and I am reeling from feeling like I'd had this life, and now this life that I loved was gone. Um, but the hospital doesn't let you go home unless you know how to walk, and so you have to practice walking. <laughs> and so at some point, I like made it to the door, and then I made it down the hallway. And then when no one was looking, I realized that there was an elevator, and I could just be set free in the, in, in the, on the first floor. So I was like wheeling. I'm in my cotton hospital gown, just... I tried to double knot at the back. I did my best. And I'm like... <laughs> In the lobby. I <laughs> just <laughs> wheeling my little IV bag. And I see this hospital gift shop. And I had been there a million times before. Like, I'm a professor at the university next door. And I normally study these self-help books like... Um, 
you know, your best life now, every day of Friday, like that kind of thing. And normally I study it, I hope, with a kind of just benevolent detachment, a compassionate observation. But not that day. I saw this enormous display of Joel Osteen, the televangelist, prosperity preacher who had best life now books on display. And I just lost my mind. I went in with my little IV pole and just started taking apart the display, which in my honestly, in my mind, I think what I imagined would happen was I would remove all of the books very helpfully on the floor, and then I could provide a list of suggestions of like what they might buy instead. And instead, this poor bookstore manager is like, ma'am, ma'am, like a hostage situation. <laughs> and I had to try very hard to explain, like, I'm not a random person. I'm, in fact, very weirdly an expert on this, but also I promise I work here. But I swear to you, like I, I said very, it was so dramatic. I was like, you can't sell this to me. <laughs> I was like, oh. So, um, and then by the time I, I took my next lap, the, the next day, the it had been reassembled with, with a new set of Joel Osteen books. So <laughs> sure. you, never, you never really win. <laughs> well, in fact, Kate did win in the end and has written a book of her own. Actually, it's her second book called No Cure for Being Human. And it's a wonderful counterpoint to all those self-help books that claim you'll be okay if only you just tried harder. Our next guest is Bianca Jones Marlin. Very interesting work. Kind of, kind of amazing. It is kind of amazing. And it stems from a study that was done after World War II which showed that children and even the grandchildren of people who were starved during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands seemed to have effects of that starvation that somehow got passed down to the later generations. And Bianca wanted to find out how that might work. As a, a relatively young scientist, I'm not waiting for um, a, a starved population of people to have grandchildren <laughs> to iron this out. So, <laughs> because I still do want, you know, still do want to get, 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 continue on with my career, my model organism are mice. So mice take about a month to procreate. And so within three months, we can have our answers when it comes to the ramifications of a stress or a trauma. Uh, Because also the fact that we're using mice, we don't use starvation in our our current studies, um, as exciting as they are. I'm a neuroscientist by training, and I'm interested more in the emotional and cognitive aspects that can be passed on through our generations. So what we do is we use the senses, so hearing, smell, taste, and we pair that with a stressful experience. And we're not talking about starving the animals for eight months or something that we would consider traumatic as humans. We use a light foot shock, a light foot shock paired with an odor. What would that foot shock be like to us? <laughs> a, a, accidentally getting a shock from an electric light switch? Is it mild I, like that? I make sure all of my students test it because I want them to experience what, what the mouse has experienced as well. <laughs> oh, and, good. you know, they're all nervous. <laughs> They're all a little bit stressed and they touch and they all jump back. So it's enough for us to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> we wouldn't want to keep our hand there forever. So, what, so what, what happens then when they get that shock? Yes, that light foot shock paired with the odor. And so we have 10 seconds of, of, foot, of odor and then we co-terminate with a shock. That seems to create changes in the nose to the cells that respond to that odor. So the beauty of the, of the, of the nose um, that one of my mentors won the Nobel Prize for was that every cell in the nose expresses one and only one receptor. And so it's a beautiful mosaic that's very particular. And what we observed, um, this is work that we're following up on, what we observed is that when you pair the odor with the shock, 
only the cells that respond to that odor seem to increase. All of a sudden, there are more of those. There are more cells that respond to that odor when there is a trauma associated with the smell. And how Uh, amazing is that, that the brain is saying, you need to change something (laughs) to have more cells that respond to this odor. And so that within itself is amazing because there's some conversation going on that we, the Marlin Lab, are parsing out. But what's, I, I think, even more beautiful, or I guess parallel beautiful, is that the kids of those parents who were shocked paired with odor, are born with more cells that express the receptor of that odor. That Now, that somehow seems to explain the Netherlands experience to a great extent. <laughs> Am I done? We're good? <laughs> I can check it off the list. <laughs> good, good work. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But it's, it's beautiful to think of an experience somehow gaining a message that's so specific that your offspring can, can incorporate that. And it's not just now that these children are walking around with anxiety because of the smell that they may come across, but it could just be that the kids are prepared for when that smell comes again, they're more sensitive to it. They can respond more easily. They can run away more quickly. They're primed for survival. And that's really what the, what the, what my lab focuses on, what the Marlin lab focuses on, how parents prepare their offspring for survival. Next up is another guest who's interested in how our brains affect our behaviour, and that's Robin Dunbar. We actually met him about a dozen years or so ago, I think, in Oxford when we were filming for the series The Human Spark. Robin spent most of his life studying primates, lower primates, like chimpanzees and monkeys. But more recently, he's turned his attention to us. And he came up with this notion that there's a relationship between the size of the brain and the number of friends we can have, the number of friends we can have meaningful relationships with. And that number turns out to be 150, now known as Dunbar's number. This is going to be great. I've never interviewed anybody who had their own number before. I've had, <laughs> I've had a tarantula named after me, but never a number. Dunbar's... A tarantula, Alan. No, it's really, it's unusual. Dunbar's number. What? Tell me what Dunbar's yes. number is. I might preface that by saying that somebody did point out that there are only about uh, 10 people who've had numbers named after them, and most of them are already dead. So <laughs> this is kind of bad news. <laughs> so uh, what's Dunbar's number? Dunbar's number is the limit on the number of friends and family that you can have meaningful relationships with. And um, this is characteristic of all monkeys and apes, but obviously the the actual number, the size, varies with, with the species. So humans having a much bigger brain have bigger numbers, and that's because the kind of typical size of social group for a species is simply a consequence of the size of the brain that the species has, or to be more specific, the kind of big chunk at the front that does all the management of our relationships. That's the key. So the bigger that chunk in the front is, the greater our circle of friends is liable to be? Yes. So Dunbar's number, 150, is the maximum number of people you can know pretty well. But there's a smaller circle of maybe just as few as five people who are much more important to you. And it's interesting because what makes that group of five important is that it's similar to monkeys. And the thing that really bonds monkeys together is the act of grooming each other. Of course, we don't tend to groom each other too much, especially you and I, who 
don't have much hair on top to groom, but he, but he thinks the monkey grooming releases endorphins. That's sort of the feel-good hormone in the brain. And he thinks that we've got other social ways to get a hit of endorphins. It's possible to trigger this endorphin response in the brain by a number of other activities. And these activities have come to be central to our uh, social toolkit, if you like. And they are things like laughter, um, singing and dancing, singing in a wordless sense, just a humming, if you like, around the campfire. And then once language evolved, the rituals of religion, uh, feasting, uh, eating and drinking socially together, and lastly, the storytelling, and particularly telling emotional stories. And we've shown that all of these trigger the endorphin system in the brain, and they trigger this increased sense of bonding. And, and, and you know, I always come back to singing on this, because singing seems to be absolutely instantaneous. I mean, we, we've done experiments with people, um, you know, so these are complete novices uh, for whom we set up a, a singing class, or it was a sort of course of, of weekly classes. And that was quite spectacular because just an hour of singing together, and I'm not talking about singing Verdi arias or anything fancy. I'm talking about, you know, round a campfire community singing, mm. just plain good old uh, stuff. An hour of that, and people who are complete strangers uh, emerge from that feeling that they are have been friends for life. And actually this kind of is interesting because, I mean, I'm sure you all know this, well enough is I'm, I'm told there's a kind of saying, if you like, among theatre directors that an audience comes in to the theatre as strangers, but it goes out as a community. Yeah, especially if, if it's... If a, the play has worked. Especially if it's a comedy, laughing together... Exactly. ...opens yes, so you up to Laughing together, yeah. Uh, yeah. What, the the yeah. benefits of getting together in the first place, is it really so? Has it really been shown to be true? that the more friends you have, the longer you live? Uh, indeed it has. And I think this has been the big kind of surprise of the last mm, 15 years, something of that order, um, is the sort of huge volume of work that's emerged, um, showing that the best predictor of your psychological health and well-being, your physical health and well-being, and even how long you're going to live into the future from the present moment, as it were, is best predicted by the number and quality of close friendships you have. It's not all friendships. It's this little core in the center of round about five uh, kind of best friends and family. The, the number you have in that inner circle and the quality of those friendships is a very, very strong predictor of both your psychological and physical health and well-being. It's quite extraordinary, you know. So you... We could do without doctors. Yeah. <laughs> if we could Unless you the, have one... If we could fix the loneliness problem. The trick is to get, do a, without get a doctor as a friend. Then you're, then you're, you're in. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so while Robin Dunbar shows how important our relationships with our close friends is... Our next guest is Nancy Padilla-Coriano, who looks at a different way we relate to other people, and that depends on whether we think they're more important or more powerful than us. In other words, the importance of hierarchy. Here's Nancy. 
No, I think that humans, we don't like thinking ourselves as animals, you know, so hierarchies or dominance hierarchies, that sounds like something from animal kingdom, but it's definitely from our, our kingdom as well. It's from our society as well. We have hierarchies in the workplace and the home, and we flexibly uh, change our behavior depending on which hierarchy we're currently participating in. When I give my seminar talks, I like giving this example. Um, so imagine that there in seminars, when, when we go to seminars in academic spaces, there's sometimes like free pizza in the, in the room. Right. <laughs> yeah. And there's, um, that was pretty much before the pandemic, but we'll get there back to the free pizza soon enough, hopefully. Um, and then the pizza goes really quickly. And then imagine you're reaching for the last slide of pizza at the same time as the chair of the department is reaching for the last slide of pizza. It's probably going to take you less than a second to retract your hand as soon as you see that the, the other, who the other hand is. And that automatic reaction is because your brain can understand that where you're in, that person has more power than you. Nancy doesn't work with humans, but with mice. And she's found changes in their brains, depending on whether they're in a dominant or submissive relationship, with another mouse. And she suspects that the same sort of changes are happening in our brains. So we have brain changes with regard to who's dominant and who's not. If somebody becomes more dominant in our lives, our brains are changing to accommodate that and will reflect it, be, be reflected in our behavior, I guess. <laughs> That's right. And my brain is now thoroughly scrambled by 30 years of letting you take the last piece of pizza. When we did the science show, I did everything you told me to do because you were the producer. Now you now you feel less dominant. I, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> well, I think we, we balance it out pretty well now. I think so. Okay, so we have one more person to tell you about in this season. As usual, we have 11 guests, but we're just telling you about the first half dozen or so. And the last one we're going to talk about is Tor Hansen, who's just written a book with a wonderful title, Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squid, about how animals are adapting to climate change. The lizards in the title of his book are an example of very rapid evolution. Yeah, I, I saw the video of how the lizards had changed because the weather had made it impossible for the lizards who didn't have big hands and small feet it made it impossible for them to hang on to a, a stalk of something in a strong wind. When you see the survivors who had these big forelegs being able to hang on and their offspring having the same characteristics, you realize how animals can adjust so, so swiftly to climate change. You're right that this was a case of a fairly quick adaptation to climate change, but towards bigger point, is that there's much more subtle things going on over time that, so that even small differences in temperature can have a devastating effect on a species. Uh, and one of the examples he gives is some very different lizards that live in the desert southwest. You don't have to die from heat itself 
to be drastically affected by climate change. And this research comes from a great uh, herpetologist named Barry Sinervo, and he and colleagues had realized that there were fence lizard populations winking out in some of the hottest deserts of the American Southwest, where on the face of it, you might think that species would be well prepared for a warmer world. It's so hot. They're used to it, aren't they? They seem to like it. I know. But if you've ever tried to catch a fence lizard, which is how I spent parts of my childhood, trying and failing, (laughs) uh, you'll notice that these bloody lizards scamper under a rock just as soon as you get, you you pounce and they're under the rock just like that. Uh, But it turns out that they use those rocks for a lot more than escaping young lizard enthusiasts. They're (laughs) what uh, scientists call heliotherms. They use the sun, the helio, uh, to thermoregulate, to control their body temperatures. So they, they sit on top and bask in the sun when they need to warm up. And then they scurry under a rock when they need to cool down. They can't stay in the sun indefinitely because they don't have the physiology to correct for that uh, increase in heat. And eventually they'd overheat and perish. So they always have to be close to a rock so they can cool down when they need to. So as the climate has warmed in places like the desert southwest, the lizards have responded by doing what they have always done on hot days. They spend more and more time in the shade. But that, of course, comes at a cost because the longer you are hiding under a rock to stay cool, the less time you have to go out and forage for food. And so what was happening in these populations, particularly for the uh, female lizards in those populations, there was a critical point, it turns out, after about four extra hours of hiding in the shade, if that happened, if they crossed that line during the day, then they weren't getting enough food. And they weren't able to, over time, build up the energy reserves in their bodies to reproduce, which means... As the climate is warming, some of those lizards are not breeding. And you really don't need the, the PhD in herpetology to figure out the long-term consequences of that. They weren't dying straight out from the heat. They were dying because their populations stopped producing baby lizards. So that's some of what you'll be hearing on Season 15 of Clear and Vivid. I hope you join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. We've got some really fascinating people. And we start off with Max Brooks next week and why thinking about zombies might help us survive in difficult times ahead. That's next Tuesday. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.